Podcasting from anywhere other than a jail cell, this is Soberholic, a podcast created to encourage, equip, and inspire you to overcome your hurts, habits, and hangups. And now, your show hosts, Roger and Jason. Welcome back to Soberholic. I'm Roger. I'm in studio today with a special guest and Jason. I, wait, I'm not the special guest? No, you're not the no, special guest today. I know. No, not today. So, um, you know, I, I don't really want to do the small talk today. I want to kind of get to the story today because it's going to be good. Um, I'm really excited about this. We were at the Ian Heroin Walk, which you're wearing the shirt. Did you do that on purpose? I did it on purpose. Nice. And this is where we met Drew, and he's going to be talking to us today about his story and some of the things that he has done in recovery. But um, I guess without a whole lot of spicy introductions, Drew, let me introduce our listeners to you. Um, you're Drew Callner, I get it yes. right? Yes, yeah. Okay, so, nailed it. Nailed uh, yeah. it. Well, we did practice a little yeah. bit beforehand. It's, <laughs> and it's not even that hard. I never get names right. And so, Drew, um, you know, we talked a little bit about what we were going to do today, and we wanted to share with everybody your story. And so, like most stories, it starts with a beginning. So talk to us about it. What does your your life look like? Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, first of all, guys. Um so yeah, I uh, never intended to stumble upon this this world of recovery. You know, uh, I was the polar opposite, anything but. Um, originally from Seattle, Washington, I uh, lived there until I was 20 years old. Um, lost my father when I was about 11 years old, and that kind of changed the course of my life. Um, so now I'm living with a single mother and a sister. And I didn't quite realize at the time, but looking back, uh, 11 and 12 is probably one of the worst ages for a boy to lose his father directionally. And so I dove off into lots of bad character uh, traits, you know, from shyness and isolation to um, attention seeking and then later in high school, girls and drugs Um, and what I found in high school was, um, I got a rush off of being the class clown Mm. and, um, you know, and the class clown definitely liked to party. So I was drinking, I was smoking and I was making seniors laugh and juniors and getting attention. Um, and I thought that was going to be the rest of my life. I was going to be with those people, uh, drinking and smoking and partying and womanizing and all this stuff for the rest of my life. And after high school, everyone graduated with a normal GPA. I graduated <laughs> with a two point five. I guess they were. I guess they were studying the whole time. You know, uh, everyone got these acceptance letters to colleges, and um, I was scrambling. So I went to University of Montana, just um, out of that's what they would take my GPA. I went there, lost, and I lasted almost a full year <laughs> like to make a point almost full year uh made it one semester you know all d's f's everything came back home and when Did that I, party lifestyle go over into college with you oh yeah. yeah and i was almost like a, a veteran you know i thought you know all 18 year olds had been doing this for four or five years you know and we were experienced but there were people there that had never drank never smoked weed and Um, you know, I was teaching them things, but also, (laughs) you know, and I, you know, I was, I was blown away, but, um, I tried cocaine there and 
it showed me I had always n- never wanted to go anything further than weed. Mm-hmm. And it what it showed me is I've got a little wild side. Like I'm willing to do things that are against my moral compass. Mm-hmm. So when I came back home, all my friends had kind of graduated. The ones that didn't go to college and stuff had graduated from selling large amounts of marijuana to Oxycontin. And it was around that time I tried it. And just like everyone that can relate to this, I found my calling. I found the comfort for the rest of my life. Every feeling of uneasy, that warm blanket I'd been searching for my whole life, every direction I had ever looked for was in that snort. And I said a little thing to myself that was like a known truth. I said, I'm going to feel this for the rest of my life, and I will do anything to feel it. (laughs) Bulldoze anyone in my path. And so it kicked off a really long career with opiates. Um, Spiraled this way, spiraled that way, to the point where I had to leave Seattle um, uh, financially and whatnot. And my mom had moved back home to Alabama where she was from. So I chased her, you know, mommy, please, you know, ran out of rent money, mm-hmm. you know, and somebody got to bail me out here. Yeah. This is where I got to go to. Totally. Yeah. But you know, totally like downplaying why. And I got here and I said, okay, I'll, I'll go in the military. Hey, let, let me ask you, did, yeah. did you use this? Because I've heard this and I've done things like this. I'm just going to go back to Alabama with my mom to help her. She needs me. She needs me to help her. Totally. Yeah. No, totally. And she had come back here to take care of my grandmother. That was her reason. So I was kind of, I'll come back and be part of the family, you know? Um, And I got, I got here and I, I didn't know anything about opiate withdrawals. I didn't know anything about anything. And what's really weird is I don't know if I totally experienced them because I just didn't even know what to expect. Um, I know my sleep was really bad and I was level 10 irritable and restless. But, um, when I got here, you know, I said, I'm okay. I don't want to be here. I just want to join the military. That will give me that fatherly direction I've needed my whole life. They'll whip me into shape. Well, (laughs) the military doesn't just, uh, take anyone, you know, like there is kind of a process. It's not Vietnam anymore. You can't just walk in and, and be in a uniform the next day. So I got delayed multiple different branches for about two years. And in those two years, I found opiates again. And shocker, Alabama has opiates too, you know, (laughs) (laughs) big shocker, you know, they had Oxycontin and I just flew off the rails to the point where I was begging the Marine Corps to take me in. Uh, They took me in. I went into boot camp and um, I thought that was my recovery. How did you pass the drug test to get in? Um, At that point in my life, I had learned a lot of tactics. Um, What's funny though, is I actually was... I should have popped hot for about three or four different drugs, meth, Oxycontin, mm-hmm. weed, and maybe something else. Like I just remember being that first week sleeping in that squad bay and I was still drinking water because I thought there was a fluke on the initial test. Mm. And now they're going to, cause they kept saying, we're going to test you again now that you're in. So I was drinking water every second to like flush myself. Mm. 
because you, I guess you went, was it Maps there in Montgomery yeah, where you went in? Yeah. Because when I went in, like, I was the same way. I was just a garbage can yeah, addict. Whatever you could find, I would take. Mm-hmm. And my recruiter would not send me down to Maps there in Montgomery to do the official drug test until we passed one here locally. Oh, so yeah. every week he was making me take a drug yeah. test oh, yeah. until I could, to pass it until I could go down to Montgomery. Yeah, so that's and that's that kind of how mine was, too. Um, I just think – my office might have been a little shadier because they were they <laughs> they were telling us what drinks to buy, right. how much exact time, yeah. but like kind of a wink wink right. thing. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm in. I'm rocking. I'm getting pushed to my limits. And what I found in the Marines was um, that I had. I don't know what I found, guys. I just I found a direction. Mm-hmm. Once again, direction. I thought it was. I found a, a, a physical energy. I found a leadership quality about myself, and I dove into that. Now, when I went home, I used. Even that first break, I went right to the drugs. And then I would go to whatever, you know, schooling, those initial schoolings, and then I'd come home and I would use. But I was still like I was in better shape. I looked better. I spoke better. I was a Marine now. So people are giving me respect. And you have some confidence, I would imagine. Exactly, yeah. And so I felt like, okay, it's okay if I'm using because I'm not just this gutter junkie, you know. Um, And then I went off to my base, 29 Palms, and I was kind of isolated out there. You know, it's an Iraq-Afghanistan training base. It's a desert town, and so you kind of just do military stuff. There's no real ways to get in trouble. Um, or so I thought, and I, I excelled, I did great. I, you know, I did all great PFT stuff. I was a leader. I did all this really good, good marks on my resume. And then I started to party (laughs) and what was different about me and the other ones was that I, you know, I just was able to push it a little bit farther. Um, and so I just kept pushing it, kept pushing it and got involved with drugs and got involved with fighting, and got in trouble. <laughs> and when I got in trouble for the fighting, um, I got piss test. Mm. And when I got piss test, I popped. And I tried to come up with all these lies and everything. And they, uh, you know, call it God intervening or what. But for once in my life, I couldn't talk my way out of it. Mm. You know, like I was telling you guys before we started, I was all these letters of recommendation, all these people that still thought I was this clean-cut guy, you know, staff sergeants, gunnery sergeants, putting their name on the line, but God wanted me to get spanked for that, and I I needed to be. So I went to the brig, and the brig was uh, a very humbling (laughs) place, you know? Um, It's where the bad boys of the military go. So essentially military jail for people who don't know what we're talking about. Totally, and it's ran by military. So it's a weird place. You know, you go from people buying your meals at airports and women running to hug you and all this stuff to now you're in a jail governed by your friends. It's it's very weird. Um, and not a lot of liberties in there. No, you know, no TVs, nothing. They want you to really feel that you screwed up. So um, it was just a moment of kind of you would think I would get it there. And of course, that's just another setback. So I, when I went to get out, they had stripped my rank from me. Um, so now I was a bottom private. They asked me if I wanted to stay in or get out. 
I told him, get out. Um, once again in life, I wanted to run, run from any, you know, pain, any challenge. So I came back home and that just kicked off the using, found Oxycontin again, found eventually in, you know, 08 time, 010, Oxycontin went away. I found heroin. The only difference about this time around with it was, you know, addiction is a progression, you Mm -hmm. know, and now I'm really progressed and I've got a little crazy in me. So I've got that Marine, like, I will rob you. I will run from the cops. I will do whatever. Let's take any risk because I've been through the Marines, you know. I'm bulletproof. Yeah, I'm bulletproof. (laughs) And that's a bad mix to add to somebody with a survival instinct of addiction. Right. Now they have nothing holding them back. Like, I will uh, screw this drug dealer over. I will get in a car chase. Like, it just made me, yeah, bulletproof. Um, so I went to some pretty depths with heroin and eventually caught a court case, um, which just needed to happen. Mm -hmm. A lot of things that happened before the court case that I thought I could get away with, Mm -hmm. you know? And once I got it, um, I was able to financially get a lawyer through my family, which a lot of people don't have access to. And that lawyer was able to give me just enough grace to get uh, offered to go to a treatment. And looking back, I, you know, I should be in prison for a long time. Mm. And, you know, I just know a lot of people aren't afforded that. Right. So I went to my first treatment. And let me tell you, when you see the commercials of the nice treatments, that was it. We didn't know there was other treatments. <laughs> so the family put together all this money, and they're like, I guess it costs this much. <laughs> but I went to, like, the Malibu of treatments. Were you on the beach? Yeah, but in Destin, <laughs> I had, I had I a pro- had to go to one of those. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even know there was difference yeah. until later in my story, but, like, um, yeah, I mean, there was a private chef, paddle boards, archery. No. We went to a shooting range and shot AK-47s, <laughs> Lapua sniper rifles. Like, they took people coming off drugs to a shooting range. Yeah. Um, but you know, They may have been on drugs themselves. Exactly, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a private rehab. It was beautiful. But you left with no foundation, mm-hmm. I hate to say. You know, uh, we went to one AA meeting. And it was just like... Was it steps-based? No, it was called like holistic-based. Okay. So Mm. they taught you everything. They did take you to an AA meeting, but they also taught you like acupuncture, meditation. Mm. They wanted to give you like the buckshot approach and hope you grabbed onto something. Mm. But we need a little more discipline, as you guys know. And like, so I came out, immediately used, kicked off, wicked relapse. By the time I landed back into treatment, it was, um, I was on a new level. A uh, new eviction notices, um, really bad things going on. Spiral out of control. Spiral, quickly. yeah. I was at a new level of low. And so when I went in, um, I think at this point I had graduated to IV use. And so when I finally went in. But um, you never saw that coming back when you said, I'll never go past pot. You know, <laughs> oh, I'm never yeah. going to do any of this other no, stuff. No, no. Drinking and smoking weed's cool. You know, yeah. I, I'll never go do any of these other totally. stuff. Totally. And there's always those levels in using, like, um, you know, I'll, 
I'll never snort off this table. I'll never use that. I'm this type of drunk. I only drink beer. I don't do out. You know, and like all these things that we tell ourselves, like we're a little bit better than that guy or mm-hmm. that girl. There's I'll no never, way I would share a needle. Yeah. Yeah. I'll never <laughs> steal. <laughs> it always, it yeah. always gets higher. You know? yeah. I'll never steal from somebody. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I went to a, a very hospital 12-step like serious program, and that was awesome. It kicked my butt, and I got to really work. I landed in a halfway house, you know, and I got to learn what the steps were. 90 and 90, 90 meetings, you know, 90 days. It was it was old school. Um, and I, I did really well in that program, but when I, you know, I weaseled my way into, you know, I'm, I'm done with the halfway house. I just need a job and this and that. And I got out. And one thing I think is important that not a lot of people talk about is I, um, we were talking about a little bit, but I got into synthetic opiates and I got into synthetic opiates thinking, well, it's not heroin. You're talking about like Kratom and stuff like that? Yeah, we've talked about it a little bit. So I got into gas station opiates, and I did it for a long time. Gas station opiates. Yeah. You know, like, and it's really a thing, like, you know. It's big now. Yeah, and I started, you know, chairing meetings on it, and I started, uh, you know, like sponsoring on it, and I, but the whole time I knew I was high. You know, I knew it, and eventually it led to heroin. You know, but what's crazy is I was spending the same amount of money on it that I was like high level opiate. Just because you could justify it and say exactly. you're not really high. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And my, you know, my pupils were still pinpointed. I was scratching all the same characteristics as heroin, but something you buy at a gas station. So I, I went to another treatment facility, and this was just two weeks, and I popped out. And eventually I landed in a state-funded treatment facility and left the second day. And then eventually I went back to that first one, the long-term, hardcore, 12-step hospital rehab. And this time I did really well. And I decided to go back into the halfway house. And I decided to extend at the halfway house. And I excited, or, uh, you know, decided to really work. And that was the time that stuck. Now, I have had very minor relapses, like 24-hour ones since that. That was years ago. But it has stuck. I have not had a wild eight-month, six-month, you know, the relapses we normally think of. You lose everything. You lose everything. I have not had one of those. Um, And I really believe a lot of it was from enough time separated and enough time to work the program, you know, and – be in a community, you know, and feel, feel some successes in recovery that I don't think I ever had allowed myself to feel, you know. What do you think it was pain that just finally motivated you? Like, was you just had hit your threshold of pain? Yes. I, you know, like it's so weird because you never think a bottom can get lower, you know, (laughs) and to look back at the first one, I thought the first one was terrible. You know, I'm facing all these felony charges, this mm-hmm. and that. You know, I thought that was as bad as it can get. And then the progression of it just got so much worse. So, yeah, that last one was just kind of, I don't even know who I was doing it for at that point. might have been my mom's crying tears. It might have been, I just literally felt like I didn't, I couldn't do this much longer, you know, health-wise. Um, I was going to catch some sort of disease or 
get shot by a drug dealer or something. Mm. You know? So it was the lifestyle you were tired of. You were just yeah. sick of waking up and doing that anymore. Mm. I was so tired. And then it was also like the family came to me and they said this, and I think this is important. They said to me, we've helped you with all these rehabs or insurance or whatever. This is the last one. Looked me dead in the face mm. and said, I want to let you know, you, know, you can go back out and relapse or whatever. This is the last time we're helping you with any sort of treatment. And, you know, I don't know if they would have said that the first time, if it would have worked or what, but there was a different level of seriousness. Like they drew boundaries. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You believed yeah. at that time. Totally. <laughs> like yeah. I can't come back no matter what. Like they will let me sleep out in the street if this doesn't work. So that was a little bit stronger. And then that also made me appreciate, wow, I do have a family that has afforded this. Um, we do have insurance and I, it made me look different about like how many people don't have that, you know, and I'd been to the rock bottom state funded one mm -hmm. where they don't even take a payment. You have to pay them back eventually one day. It's like $8 a day or something, you know, and like it's in the hood. I had been to that and now I'm being afforded this nice hospital, you know, detox and everything. And it made me think of those people that like, man, they're, t they can get sober. You know, why can't I get sober with all these liberties afforded to me? So it just worked. And, you know, I started to see things like I was able to work the steps and I was able to get to a point where I'm helping someone else work the steps. And it's not about me a hundred percent anymore. And that's like, poof, imagine that, you yeah, know, like know. big breakthrough there. Yeah. Breakthrough, <laughs> like everything's different. So now then even if I did have a small relapse, I immediately could start making coffee at a meeting or like these small steps. Even if I'm not sponsoring, I learned how to not make it all about me. I mean, that's a big deal. And I, I know for me and, and most of the people I work with too, they talk about the same thing uh, about how we're all self-centered and, you know, and 100%. everything is just about us uh, and just selfish, just altogether selfish. Well, you, you mentioned about, you know, starting the steps, working with a sponsor. Talk to us uh, a few minutes about that. Um, was there any eye-opening experiences you worked through the steps um, that you could relate to anybody listening or maybe something that your sponsor shared with you that was, ah, I would have never got that without him, you know, without him. You know, I know in my story there's a few of those. Maybe you've had those. Yeah. Well, I will tell you one, and this I, I don't mean to, like, segue into one of the films, but it's tied together. So on that last time to treatment, it was really bad. They had to send me up to a psych unit and medically detox me before they medically detox me. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> like I was on that level of like, you can't even go to the regular unit yet. So I was on a psych unit and they were trying to figure out, whoa, how do we stabilize them? And I had this kind of psychic experience. Um, and the only reason I know it's true is because it happened to me, mm -hmm. you know, and I couldn't stop. I'm like straight from the street. I am hustle and bustle. How do I get out of here? Making moves in my head. I'm insane. And I couldn't stop thinking about step two. I was like, this, what, what? I don't, I don't even know what step two is. I don't even remember. Like I'm so strung out, you know, but it just kept saying step two long, you know, fast forward. I'm working with a sponsor, this and that. Um, and I'm trying to develop this movie, you know, recovering hope. Well, it was, I just knew I wanted hope in the word, something about the word hope to find out 
later with working with a sponsor, that the spiritual principle of step two is hope. That was a huge connection for me. I was like, you have been with me this whole time, God. You have been following me. Everything is intertwined. And the more I can just turn it over to you, like that was true. That was uh, no one else could have shown me better. I could see how everything was pieced together, how it led me to that moment, how that needed to happen. Um, it was like he put it in me. And there was no other explanation. Mm. Somebody didn't come in my room and whisper, step two, step right, two. Right, you right. know, like it was it, it was him, you know. And so I was kind of when my sponsor showed me that, you know, and lots of programs don't even talk much about the spiritual spiritual principles. But when he told me that, it made sense, and I was kind of like, we all have a purpose, and we all, you know, some of us get clear on that purpose, but we all need to follow it. And so you God's know? taken a lot of your struggles and has actually channeled through your gifts of being able to direct, to direct movies. I mean, I, I did introduce you that way, and I guess I probably should have, but, um, you know, for our listeners, you do have two movies, and you shared one of them just then, but... um um, that one was recovering hope that you yes, were talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. It's already really. That was the document. I can't say that word. So, Do- documentary. That's it. Do- yeah. Document. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. We know Roger, what you're talking Roger's about. A good. Yeah, I'm a good. <laughs> you got that right. Uh, and so, what all does that talk about in that movie? So, recovering hope was something that was just built by raw passion. We didn't even know it was going to do as well as as it ended up doing. And it was 100% heroin focused. Um, I used the resources at hand, which were just people in meetings, family members, all based on heroin addiction into recovery. So it's talking to real addicts, real family members, um, real situations. Basically, if you took some of the best speakers out of these meetings and put them in a movie for other people other than us to see... Because a lot of people don't realize the the magic we're hearing in these meetings. Because it's private. Right. It's anonymous, yeah. you know? Right. And so that's what it was. It was people willing to be filmed um, and willing for me to tape them. And I included myself, my mother's in it. But what happened was it got a lot of steam behind it. And a lot of people didn't realize it was actually like almost a three-year process. But it got a lot of steam behind it and ended up when it came out. It got the cover of B Metro. It got uh, two sold out premieres in Birmingham. Um, It got worldwide distribution. It got to Amazon. It was iTunes. As of recently, it is 100% free on YouTube. Cool. So that's where people could find it. Yes, absolutely. And there's no, nothing tied to money anymore. It's just free. You just want to get the message. Exactly. Yeah. That's awesome. So, um, that was a fun one, and hopefully in the future we'll do another one. Now, because I didn't really even know much about filmmaking then. I was just raw passion. Let's do this. So I was <laughs> I was grabbing people. You know something about video? Yeah. Hey, come with me. Yeah. You know you know how to work a microphone? Come with me. That's how right. we did this podcast. Yeah, yeah. I, I still don't know anything. He knows how to do everything. <laughs> and that's how everything comes together anyways, you know? And so you're doing another or you've done another one called Powerless, right? Yeah. So and Powerless. That's, that's w- a, a, a movie, correct? Yes. Yeah. So that was a short film. Um, I wrote the script this summer and I once again got this surge of motivation, whatever, started pulling people together. So a little bit of investors, some actors, locations, cameras. 
put it together and we shot a uh, short film. I act in it. Um, I wrote it. I act. I direct a bunch of other local actors. And that right now is on a film festival run. So it's not out to the public quite yet. It's going through film festivals uh, till later this year. But um, the trailer is online. We shot it on film, which is kind of like... Um, like real film. Real film, absolutely. Yeah. Which cool. is, for the people that know, it's a lot harder. But it gives film a respect. You know, it gives mm-hmm. the story a lot more respect. Um, and that was... It's about... It's a, it's a short film, but it's about a sneak peek of two neighbors. One's in recovery, one's in addiction. Um, the guy in recovery is not crushing life. He's not mm. an all-star. He's having a, just as hard of a time as the guy in addiction mm. who's separated by the wall. They've never talked to each other. So it follows both their struggles, one in addiction, one in recovery. Real, raw stuff. And then eventually... You know, they kind of come together, and the guy in recovery learns how he can help out the other one. Hmm. But just a short film. I'm interested in it. I saw the trailer. Um, Obviously, I didn't pay enough attention to it because just you describing it got me more than listening to watching Mm -hmm. the trailer. Mm -hmm. So, in the trailer, just, you know, it's like a sneak peek. It it doesn't even hint to kind of these two worlds. Right. But yeah, that's what's going on. Because I always like the back and forth. You see how that works. And so, you know, it actually, uh, I'll just make it short, but I wrote it because I was struggling in recovery this summer. And I would go out on my porch early morning because I couldn't sleep in. I was mad I couldn't sleep in, all this. And I just started writing. And every morning, I mean, we're talking early, um, I would hear a bottle cap on the side of my apartment. These two, you know, these two porches Mm -hmm. were separated by a wall. I've never seen my neighbor. Every morning when I go out there to write and I'm struggling, I'm trying to be positive and connect with God and sobriety, and he's popping a bottle cap. And I would hear the tink, tink, tink. And I was just like, how ironic is this? He's drinking. And you got to be an alcoholic to be drinking beer at 5.45, 6 (laughs) a.m., you know, and consistently. And I'm over here trying to be in recovery, this and that. And I'm like, you know, having to write and journal. I was like, it's just weird. What if we could talk? What would happen? Mm. You know, Hmm. that's what it was developed on. And it just went, it went way different ways. But that's what it was started on. Awesome. Well, cool, Drew. Um, this is what we do every as we close up every show. Is we ask every guest that comes on, or most every guest, um, five or four questions, and we call them the final four. And I, I, I did, Jason, remember to give him these questions. No, so it was that, me that forgot. I know, I know, but one like, time. I was kind of rubbing your nose. Yeah. That you don't ever <laughs> tell people this. I try to share this with our guests because some of these are are challenging questions. Yeah, uh, some are not, but some are. And so, let me go ahead and give you the first one. Yes, please. Do. Um, can you name a book other than the Bible, a movie, or a podcast that has changed the way you look at an area of your life? Um, so that, that's a challenging one. Cause there's so many, especially films with me, uh, anything visual lot. I mean, I could go off on them, but I narrowed it down to one book, the power of now by Eckhart Tolle. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is because it's not program based. It's not this, it's not that, but it gave me a sense that, um, I can, it, it's all encompassing, you know, it's not Buddhist, it's not anything, but it showed me that I can stop the thoughts and just live in the now. And he does a beautiful way of transcribing that, that I'm mm-hmm. not doing right, right now, but yeah. you know, like 
anyone that knows of that book, it's it's huge. That's it's, actually on my to read list. Yeah, I mean, you've I, got to read it years ago. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's good. so good. It's really yeah. good. Yeah. Like I'm too cheap to buy them full price. Like I go to like oh, second and Charles. Yeah, and me too. And yeah. I go it's in, the, I ask for that yeah. book, and I know that they're always sold out. Always sold out. Yeah. So, all right. Well, number two is if you had a blank billboard to share advice with the world, what phrase would you put on it? That's a great question. First of all, um, I would say at this point in my recovery and a common theme I would want to pass in, pass on to is lean into fear. Yeah. So when you hear what people say here, (laughs) so when you, you know, just if I was driving and I saw that, just the daily anxieties or something, a goal in your mind, you know, things that your, your head talks you out of lean into it, Hmm. lean into it, push through it. I like that one. Cause fear is usually one of the things that stop that, that is the wall for most people. Yeah. Yeah. And usually if you ever cross through that and and press into it, like you're talking about, it's nowhere near as bad as you thought it was in the first place. Absolutely. Uh, Number three, um, when talking about the 12 steps, like we've talked about, What's your favorite step? Um, well, I'm definitely step two. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I figured that's where yeah, you're yeah, yeah, with. yeah. And I mean, that's just now, you know, I, I've learned more about it, you know, and obviously I've taught it to guys and I've had it taught to me a bunch of times, but it's still that spiritual principle of hope. Like, I just felt like I felt like I completely lost it at times, but looking back, I never truly lost it because I was always willing as something was able to push me into treatment one more time. Right. Hey, you just stand back up one more time, you know? So, Well, as we kind of come to the, to a close, I guess the last one is how can people reach you if they want to know more about you? Yeah. So I have an Instagram, which is my uh, video production company, Colner Creates. Um, I've got a website, www.colnercreates.net. Um, I'm on Facebook as Drew Colner or Colner Creates. So any of those ways, I'm wide open. I love speaking to anyone regarding this subject. I'm wide open with my story. Um, I can't really get away from it because I put that documentary out. So, you know, now I'm put in this position where uh, I, I would love to hear from other people and hear their stories. So there you go. Actor, director, speaker. Um, just all around great guy with yeah. a great story. Thank you. Guys. Um, and that last name is C A L L N E R. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. Yeah. And we'll put a link to it in the uh, show notes and on when we, we'll tag you on Facebook and everything. We'll be everybody will be able to find you. Cool. Awesome. Deal. Awesome. Well, Drew, thanks so much for coming on the show and being with us. Um, I hope that your story inspires others just like it inspired me today to know Thank that you. there is hope. No matter Thank how you. bad it seems, there's hope, right? Yes, absolutely. All right, Jason, that brings us to the end. I'm Roger. I'm Jason. We're signing out. Thanks for listening to Soberholic with Roger and Jason. If you like the show and want to know more, check out SoberholicPodcast.com. Please remember to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next week, Soberholics. Soberholics.